0: Um, if you're staying up here, if you take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, as we continue our look at Christ and these threefold offices of prophet, priest, and particularly we're focusing on his role as king. And so that's why uh, Sunday evenings we're going to be singing a lot about the, uh, the kingly work of Christ, how he is our sovereign, our Lord, our King before we go any further, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come and praise you and worship your name. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign of the universe, that you are our king, and that you rule and reign. And Father, we often live our lives denying that fact, turning from that fact. But Father, we thank you, Lord, that you, by your grace, show us who you are. You show us, Father, your work as king. And Father, as we see this, Lord, we see in ourselves our own failures, our own frustrations, our own lacking to fulfill the mandate that you've given us, but we thank you that Christ has all dominion and all authority given to him, and that he has ruled and reigned perfectly where we have failed. And Father, may that reality drive us to be more like Christ, to rule and reign over sin in our lives by your Spirit and through the work of your Spirit. So, Lord, work in our midst this evening. May we be encouraged, may we be challenged, Father, and may we give thanks for your sovereign rule in all things. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. So Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage, and then we're going to go back and make some important notes about uh, what is going on in this passage and how it relates to the kingly office. So Genesis chapter 3. Look with me in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, In childbearing, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What we're going to see this evening is this very familiar passage. We know that this is the entrance of sin into the world. It is the rebellion of Adam and Eve and taking and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What we are going to see that at the very base or the the root of what happened here, there was a failure to exercise the dominion that God had called Adam and Eve to have. That the kingly office that he had created them for, they abdicated that call in how they gave in to sin. So just to quickly r- remind us of what we looked at last week, creation is to be ruled. Right? God created Adam and Eve for the express purpose of having dominion and exercising dominion over the earth. He creates man and he says, You shall ex- you shall multiply, fill the earth, you shall subdue it. You're called to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creature that creeps upon the earth. He made them for this purpose and then he gives them this mandate to function as sovereigns. He calls them together, both man and woman are brought together so that they would fulfill this dominion mandate. And then God provides everything they need to fulfill this mandate. He waters the plants of the garden, He provides the trees, He plants good things for them, He provides them with sustenance. I mean, He, he puts them into a garden in a perfect environment and says, Rule over this earth. We also know God warned Adam and Eve that even though they had this perfect environment, that things were, were placed in a, in a way in which God sovereignly provided for everything they needed, He warned Adam and Eve that the earth He created would resist His dominion. Remember, he said He tells them to go and subdue the earth, and implied in that term is the idea that the earth isn't just going to happen to fall willingly, that they would have to exert themselves. And so this command to subdue the earth, um, he was commanded to subdue that resistance and rule the earth. Now here's where, when we come to Genesis 3, chapter 1, notice one of the things that I think we often skip over, but it's a point that I think Moses is trying to point us to, to make out, and that is that creation was going to fight against this dominion. When did that test happen? When the most crafty of God's creation came on the scene and what we find is that creation's resistance to man's dominion came to a head with the temptation of the serpent this was a test will you rule will you subdue the earth will you exercise this kingly role that i've given you to do And so we see this shrewd serpent. The serpent was the most capable of God's creation to resist man's dominion mandate. Again, notice in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There was, and of course we understand that this serpent is the devil himself. He is someone who has craftiness involved in his deception and the way he goes about things. And so we see that this first test comes with this serpent who is going to push back against the dominion mandate that Adam and Eve have. This serpent we see is very cunning, isn't he? He's subtle. He doesn't doesn't come right out and, and say I'm going to call you to oppose God. He seeks to get Adam and Eve on his side. He's reasonable with them. He makes Arguments, using God's own words. Now, he distorts them and twists them and lies about them. But nonetheless, he calls upon them to look at things in a certain way. It's not a full frontal attack. He seeks to bring down humanity's rule from within them. I'd just like to point out that is often how sin presents itself to us. It doesn't come to us as, a, as something that's going to be a full frontal attack on our Christianity. What happens is temptation comes very subtly. It comes and points to little things here and there that we could just give up a little bit. It's not that big a deal. The devil has not changed his tactics. He deploys several cunning tactics in his challenge to man's reign. And so I think it's helpful for us when we understand how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve that we be aware the devil is still walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, isn't he? We read that this morning in 1 Peter. So his, his tactics really haven't changed. So how does he seek to devour Christians? Well, he distorts what God has said. Again, look in verse, um, verse 1, at the end of verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, what's interesting here is he's asking Eve what God said, but then what does he do? He says, well, this is what God said, right? Like, you, you see how he's trying to trying to build her up and say, well, well, what did God really say? But then he insinuates a distortion of that. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any trees in the garden? Now, did God say that? Did God say anything remotely near that? No. And what's interesting is Eve catches on to that. He's like, well, no, he didn't say that we can't eat of any of the trees. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And so here we see her recognizing the great provision of God to her in exercising this dominion. He says... We, we just can't eat of the tree of the fruit that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it. Now notice, the devil distorted what was said. What is Eve now doing? She's distorting what God has said. Because God never said he, they couldn't touch it, they just said, He just said they couldn't eat of it. Lest we die. So He distorts what God has said. He begins to plant seeds of doubt. Doubt regarding the Word of God. Now, at this point, Eve is already beginning to cede ground to the devil. She's already starting to to let up on that dominion mandate that's been given to her. Because she herself is distorting God's Word, and she's continuing to allow the possibility of what the devil says to be considered. Considered. Well, the devil goes even further, and he lies about what God has said. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is phrased in a way to exert uh, confidence. The devil comes to Eve, and he says, "You will surely you're not going to die. It's just fruit. And what he does is by using a lie, distort, not distorting and then moving to a lie, he now is calling God himself a liar. And then notice what he goes on. Listen, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So notice what he does to chip away at God's authority. Distorts what God has said, lies about what God has said, and then he's like, you know what? God has said these things to you because he's trying to keep you down. And in fact, what you should do is you should look to see to be like him. The devil appeals to Eve's pride. It is amazing to me how to this day in the modern world, People look at the concept of God and particularly the God of the Bible and they look at it as a way of mankind or or whatever, someone trying to push man down or oppress mankind. That's exactly what the devil is saying here. God's oppressing you. God's not allowing you to be your best person now. He knows that you'll be like him. Wouldn't you want to be like God? Boy, we hear that taught today, don't we? In churches, we hear that taught. And so, notice what happens now with Eve. As he's appealing to man's pride, he ultimately is calling humanity to live independent of God. You don't need him. You can be the sovereign of this earth without paying homage to God. You can be like him. And so notice how Eve responds, verse 6. She saw that the tree was good for food. Now here's, here's the problem with that. Was there not also other good food in the garden? Everything else was good. But that one tree, it's not only good for food, but it is delighting my eyes. I think what we see here is now an abdication of what it is that truly delights Eve. It is no longer delight found in knowing God, which is the greatest of joys. At God's right hands there are pleasures forevermore. No, she says, I'm going to find and go after the things that delight my eyes apart from God. And then she sees that it was a tree that is desired. So these things, that it's good that it's a delight. Those are all speaking of desires. And underneath all those desires, she recognizes that it's a, food, it's a tree that's desired to make one wise. And so what do we see Eve doing? She takes of the fruit and eats, and she gives, to her, she gives it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, who's driving the train in this entire thing? Are we seeing Adam and Eve exercising strong dominion over the serpent? Who is exercising dominion over who? The serpent is driving the train here. The serpent is exercising dominion. The serpent is the one who's speaking into their lives that they're listening to. They are abdicating the throne that God has given them and listening to this subtle serpent. And so they rebel. We see that humanity casts off God's goodness and seeks to establish a goodness of their own. Look, who is God to forbid something from me? I know better than God what's good. What we actually find here is that it is a desire to not be ruled by God, but yet to rule their own lives apart from Him. It is... The very essence of turning from the way that God had ordered things. Because here's the thing where did Adam and Eve get the right to be rulers on earth? Who gave them that right? God did. They derived their authority from Him. And now they're saying, we don't want that authority. We want to establish it on our own. They cast off God's wisdom and they seek to establish a wisdom of their own. You know what? The serpent's right. This does look good. God's withholding good from me. Really, they are seeking to unseat God from His throne. They ultimately wanted to be like Him. They wanted to be the ultimate sovereigns of the universe. They are being led down this pathway of rebellion being led by the original rebel. We're going to look in just a little bit at Isaiah, but what was it that Lucifer wanted to do? He wanted to unseat God from his throne, and he's calling Adam and Eve to do the same thing. Well, immediately there are results of this rebellion. In verse 7, the minute they ate of that tree, it says the eyes of both of them were open. They immediately perceived the effects of their rebellion. This term or this idea that their eyes were opened, it's not in a positive way. It's not like they had some sort of amazing revelation about things. Rather, they now realize what they had done. It was not in a way that would help their reigns, but their eyes were open to their rebellion and its results. The rulers had no clothes. You know that book, The Emperor Has No Clothes? This literally was the case. They were naked and ashamed. They did not emerge from their act of rebellion as strong rulers, did they? They were weakened. They were weakened in, the goal, in what God had called them to do. They, they tried to exercise that dominion, and so they, they went and found leaves and tried to sew together loincloths out of fig leaves. But even that was woefully inadequate. Here, the minute that they took and ate of that tree and disobeyed God's law, they knew they had ceded their reign. They knew that they gave up the throne that God had given to them. They failed to be an exorc- to be kings and queens and to exercise dominion. Not only that, but they then withdrew from the one who had provided for their dominion. We see in verse 8, they hear the sound of the sovereign of the universe, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God who is the creator of all things, the one who is sustaining all things, the one who has provided for them. They hear this one who has given them only good, right? God only ever gave Adam and Eve good. And we would think when someone comes that always gives us good, we would run to them. You know, I know when my grandparents would visit my house when I was a kid growing up, I'd run to them because my grandpa would have a $10 bill for me or my grandma would have some candy for me. I mean, I knew that there'd be good things that would come there. I'd run to them. Did they run to God? They ran away. They hid themselves, both of them, the man and the wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now this is amazing. If you see the the contrast, God provided those trees to them to provide sustenance and provision for them. Now, Adam and Eve were not using creation in the way God had intended it. They're using creation to hide from Him. They're hiding among the trees of the garden. Those that stand as a testimony to the fact that God only gives goodness And they hide from God in those trees. They cower in fear. Those things that were given to provide for their mandate, they now looked on them for security from the God who provided. Their dominion was beginning to crumble. Well, how does this affect their own relationships? Well, they turn on each other. Remember how God said that he called upon both Adam and Eve and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That it was meant for Adam and Eve to fulfill this role together. And we saw in Genesis chapter 2 that when God brings sort of a test to Adam to see how he's going to exercise this dominion and he names all the animals, what is the conclusion that's made? I need a helper. I need someone to help me with this. And and God recognizes that mankind's goodness as a creation is not complete until man and woman are together. What has sin done to that? They turn on each other. Part of exercising dominion is taking responsibility. And at every point, they didn't stand up and take responsibility for their actions. They blamed it on someone or something else. He says to Adam, who told you that you're naked? Verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And notice what the man says. He doesn't say yes. I mean, he does say yes. I mean, eventually he gets there, but he begins by saying, well, the woman that you gave me. Now, Notice the slight against God that that statement is. This helper that you provided for me so that I can exercise dominion in a good way, that's the reason why I fall in God. If I would have never had this woman, I would have never ended up in this state. Sin corrupts the most precious of relationships. And here it is, Adam ceding his dominion and then blaming others. God gave Eve to Adam as a gracious helper for his dominion mandate, and he turns on her at the drop of a hat. This is why, just a little aside, this is why throughout the Scriptures there is such a strong call upon Husbands to love their families, to give themselves away for them, to be kind and compassionate and caring for them. Your wife is a gift from God. What did Eve do? God turns to Eve and said, What is this you have done? Because although Adam is to exercise dominion here and and he is the one that was created first and he's the head of this family, nonetheless Eve is still responsible for her own actions. What have you done? What does the woman say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. She essentially admits that she failed to subdue the serpent when tempted. What was the command? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, over the beasts of the field and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. That was her command, and she admits, I failed. And Adam failed With her. Adam and Eve both completely abdicated their responsibilities to subdue and exercise dominion. Now, what's the result of this? Their reign is cursed from this point on. They are sovereigns over the earth, but their reign is cursed. Notice. What God says. He of course curses the serpent. We'll come back and look at that in a second. And then he says in verse 16 to the woman. He says I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Multiplication would be painful. Now here's the thing. What was the command given to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and what? Multiply. And fill the earth. God had intended for the procreation of humanity to be a means by which the earth is subdued. He doesn't take away that mandate to subdue the earth. He just makes it harder. And it's first brought about by the fact that the the one thing that's necessary for them to rule this great earth that God has created, it will now be painful. I will You're to multiply upon the earth. As you multiply, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And this is referring not just to the pain of physical birth, but it is referring to the pain that happens all along the entire process of raising children and having children, everything that's involved in there. Not only this, Adam and Eve were called together to be a team of sovereigns, husband and wife ruling and reigning over the earth. Notice what else happens. Your desire, the end of verse 16, shall be, are you going to get along with your husband? Are things going to be hunky-dory? No. Men and women will be at odds in the exercise of their dominion. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so, this close, special gift of God that God has given to man and wife to have as a relationship now is going to be corrupted and cursed because of their sin. And then he says to Adam, verse 17 creation is going to be hardened even more against man's rule. You thought it was, it was going to be, you know, that, hum, that creation was going to resist your rule before? You ain't seen nothing yet. Look at verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of, the, of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Why? Why is the ground cursed? Because of you. Your dominion, your failure to rule as king, has now caused the earth to be cursed. And listen, remember God provided beautiful provision in the garden. He watered the plants. The fruits of those trees were nothing but good. Now, as Adam and Eve seek to eat Of the ground, they will do it in pain, and they will do it all the days of their lives. Instead of the garden that they are called to tend, instead of the earth that they're called to tend, being easily subdued, now it comes and it brings thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow or the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. And then here's, here's the reality. What happens to you at the end of all things? When, when your life is over, you're going to return to what? To dust. The dust of the earth that has caused you pain your entire life, you go right back into it. For you are what? Dust. And to dust you shall return. So, as we finish here, God says, Behold, the man, verse 22, has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, what does God do? There's this beautiful garden that God has provided for them that has, that's given sweet provision that is watered by rivers in the midst of God. And God says, You're driven from this place. Man is expelled from the garden. This place where there was a perfect environment for humanity to exercise dominion is now unavailable to humanity. Adam and Eve lost their kingdom. They failed to exercise dominion in a perfect kingdom, and they lost it. Listen, have you ever been upset with something the United States government has chosen to do? Have you ever had a problem with the policy of Congress or of a president? Have you ever looked at some of the things that the United Nations have said they're going to do and and just sort of scratched your head and say, where are they coming from? What about... Locally here, you look at what some school board chooses to do locally, or that your, your you know, borough council raises your taxes again. I mean, how often have we seen failures to rule in the world in which we live? Why is that? Because we gave up on the perfect environment. We sinned. In Adam, we all sinned and we're expelled from the perfect environment. And now all we have is turmoil and conflict and difficulty. It's rough. But our God is so gracious. Because even in the midst of all this, yet... God's grace is given to Adam and Eve in God's promise of a perfect ruler. Look at Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between... He's talking to the curse of the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, the seed of a woman. What will... The offspring of the woman, do. He shall crush your head. That word subdue, that is given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it has the idea of treading underfoot. And so God is promising look, you failed. You failed to be the rulers that I've called you to do. But I'm gracious and I will give you a king who will not fail. Who will tread under his foot this subtle serpent. And yes, his heel will be bruised, but the head of the serpent will be crushed by the rule of the seed of a woman. What is amazing here is that God does not, who, does not treat Adam and Eve as they deserve. What did He promise them would happen? Death. And God is so gracious to say, you've abdicated your throne, you've lost your kingdom, but there will be a human, a seed of the woman who will come and will reign victoriously. The battle for the rule of this world will be waged between two kingdoms. The kingdom of the serpent and the kingdom of the seed of the woman. And the serpent will land glancing blows against the woman's offspring bruising his heel. Listen, God is saying that there is going to be a continual cosmic battle for the dominion of this earth. But there's also a promise that Christ will emerge victorious. And Christ has emerged victorious. And it has been demonstrated to the entire universe in the fact that He has risen from the dead. That is the great hope. That what Adam and Eve failed to do to subdue and have dominion over the world, Christ has accomplished. And so, I want us to close this evening by looking at how that dominion is demonstrated in Matthew chapter 4. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. In many ways, Matthew 4 is... Very similar to Genesis chapter 3. The scene is very similar. As we've seen already, we know that the seed of the woman is indeed Jesus Christ. We're going to look at more of His dominion later on. One of my favorite passages is in the book of Revelation where you see Christ triumphing over the dragon. But that's... Like, I don't know, six months away till we get to that point. But here we see a contrast in the similar situation between what Adam and Eve failed to do and what Christ is able to do. Look with me, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1. We'll read through verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here is Christ, the King of kings, confronting that subtle serpent. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? Hungry. I want want to just note, Adam and Eve had full provision, perfect provision in the garden. They're in a garden that is lush with water and provision. The perfect environment. What type of environment is Christ in when this happens? He's not in a garden. Where is he? The wilderness, and he's hungry. Look, I'm hungry since lunch. Forty days and forty nights. I'd be starving. I'd be looking for hams everywhere. And so, so just to demonstrate the awesome dominion of Christ, he puts Christ not in the perfect environment, but in the most difficult and harsh environment. Verse 3, here comes the tempter. Here comes that serpent, that sly, subtle tempter. And he says to them, says to, to Christ, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Notice how, again, he's using the same tactics. He doesn't come with an all out frontal attack on Christ, he just tries to get him on his side. You're hungry. You're the Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now Christ answers. There's no distortion. There's no sense of changing what God has said. He answers by saying, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here was the the initial problem with Eve and Adam. They chose to not live by the words of God. They chose to live by other things. Christ not having it. I live by God's word, not your words. The devil's not done. Takes him to the holy city, to Jerusalem and all the history that would be involved in that. This is the place where God dwells with his people. This is where Jesus is to be crowned king. And he puts him up on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the temple was central to the life of Jewish people in those days. And the temple was a place where where anything that happened there would be evident to everyone. Everyone would see what was going on. He says, look. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down because it's written. Now notice what he's doing here. He's quoting Scripture back to Christ. He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, just a quick note here. There is a tendency among humanity to argue for things that are wrong from Scripture by taking verses and ripping them out of their context and then saying, well, this is what God has said, right? All right, Who's the first person who did that? The devil. Not a good way to approach Bible study. I'm just throwing that out there. I digress. That was free. No charge for that today. If you want to leave a tip afterwards, that's fine. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Verse 8 again. The devil takes him to a very high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said... All these I will give you. Now, again, Christ has been sent to exercise dominion over the world. The devil is saying, you want to do this? You want to rule over this world? Fine. I'll give it to you. All you've got to do is just fall down and worship me you can be king you can be king Jesus just worship me then Jesus says to him be gone Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve then what happened The devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Just some quick observations of how Christ exercises dominion. We see, first of all, that Christ demonstrates dominion by adhering to God's word. The devil attacked the word and the promises of God in the same way that he attacked those things with Eve. Do you notice the similarities? Has God said, Well, the Word of God says this. If you're truly the Son of God, you'll be able to do these things. And instead of depending on the one from whom she derived her authority as a ruler, Eve and Adam cast off God's Word, and they listen to the lies and distortions of the devil. And here Christ rebukes them at every turn. No, Satan, you're wrong. This is what God's Word says. Christ's life was bound up in God's Word. He sets the tone by quoting that man doesn't live by bread alone. What does man live by? The Word of God. That that God had provided everything sufficient for dominion in the revealed Word that He had given. And so he demonstrates dominion by adhering to God's word. He demonstrates dominion by submitting to God's rule. Drawing again from God's word, Christ establishes that he cannot put God to a test. As the God-man seeking to provide dominion where mankind failed, he doesn't have the standing to test God. I mean, that's what... the devil was essentially asking, call God out. You're not surely die. Go ahead and take and eat of it. You'll be fine. Same thing here. Cast yourself off from the temple. Angels will lift you up. God, and Christ, who has in His incarnation willingly subjected Himself to the Father, says, I am not testing the Lord my God. Again, the devil here is distorting what God has said. These verses aren't given so that Jesus can jump off of the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And then finally, we see that Christ demonstrates dominion by subduing Satan. The last assault, the last temptation, was the most frontal attack that the devil gives. And he does it still subtly. Offering Christ all the kingdoms of the world. Offering Christ the dominion that Adam and Eve had ceded. All you have to do is worship me. And Jesus doesn't even for a millisecond of a millisecond of a millisecond of a millisecond. Consider that as a possibility. He instantly responds, be gone, Satan. You shall Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, notice that this attack is not in opposition to Christ. He's pretending to help Christ. The whole world is offered. What Adam and Eve failed to rule is offered. But Christ subdues Satan. Here's the thing. In that offer, did Satan have the right to offer the world to Christ? No. Satan has no authority or dominion apart from the authority that God Himself gives to him. Christ subdues the illegitimate offer of Satan. See, actually at this point, we see Satan trying to do what he tried to do back when... Before creation existed, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. And he tries to do it again by calling on Christ to worship him. So instead of considering or thinking or pondering Satan's offer, Christ subdues him. Be gone Satan. The New American Standard translates this, and it just says, Go, Satan. It is the strongest imperative that we... I think probably one of the likeliest strongest imperatives we see in the New Testament. Go, Satan. He exerts his authority over him. He subdues him. And how do we know that he subdues him? Look at the beginning of verse 11. What does the devil do? He goes. He leaves him. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Why does Satan obey Christ? Because Christ has dominion. He does and fills the role that Adam and Eve were meant to fill, And he does it perfectly. He does what they should have done, adhering to God's word, submitting to God's rule, and subduing the devil. What a king. What a victor. Now what can we take away from this? And again, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit in our study, but Christ has called us to be a kingdom of priests and kings. How are we to overcome temptation? We're to subdue it, not looking to ourselves. We tried that before, and it went terribly bad. We have to look to Christ. Find in Him the way of escape that He promises. Find in Him the goodness of His Word. Find in Him hope and power to overcome the devil's temptations. See, there's a wonderful hope in the new birth. Jesus tells us that if we're going to see the kingdom of heaven, we have to be born again. That means we're made new. Before all we know, was the failure of Adam, but in Christ we know the victory of Jesus. So what does that do for us now? We have to go and act like Jesus in the temptations that we face. You realize that the new birth makes it so that you don't have to sin. You don't have to do it anymore. You're not a slave to sin. It's not having dominion over you, you by God's grace in Christ can have dominion over sin. So what are we to take from that? Do it! Exercise the kingly work that you have, not in yourself, but in Christ. Turn from sin. Follow Him and find victory as you rule by God's grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our King, that He is our ruler. Father, may we, by your grace, seek to be like Him. May we subdue temptation, not in a haughtiness where we look to ourselves to do it, may we depend upon Christ, His grace and the Spirit that is given to us to guide and direct us. Father, thank You that we no longer have to sin, but that we can have victory over sin in Christ. Father, may we go from this place not making the mistakes of our mother and father of old, but seeking to be made more like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name, pleading His blood and giving thanks for His victory. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.